All right, well, good morning to all of you. We have uh, a decent amount to cover, as you can see in the outline there. So I'll uh, go ahead and pray, and, uh, and we'll get started. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day that you have made and have called your own. We're thankful that you have given us a day of rest where we can reflect upon your goodness toward us in creation and providence and salvation and redemption. Lord, we ask that you would uh, give us a foretaste of that great Sabbath rest to come through our worship today. And Lord, we pray also that you would uh, be with us even now in this class, where as we look at uh, how you've worked in your church by your spirit throughout the ages, that we would uh, learn from the past and learn from what you've done. Lord, we ask that you would bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, you can see, top of your outline there, we are talking once again about the uh, ecumenical councils. Uh, we are on the second ecumenical council, uh, namely uh, Constantinople I, sometimes called the First Council of Constantinople. Now, uh, for those of you that are just walking in, there, there may be some extra outlines if, if anybody's willing to share that are going around, so I'll just let y'all divvy those up. Um, never know how much to print or how few. Uh, so yes, we are on the uh, ecumenical councils once again. Now, just by way of review, uh, can somebody describe to me what we mean when we use that term ecumenical? Anybody at all? It's obviously not what uh, what the modern uh, what we mean in modern times. Typically, when we use that term ecumenical, it doesn't mean uh, trying to make all different religions and all different uh, so-called expressions of the Christian faith work together and cooperate and have formal union. Uh, what ecumenical simply means is uh, we saw in what was it, Luke? Two, or is it Luke one? I can't remember. Uh, where Caesar uh, gave the decree that all the known world uh, should be uh, should take the census, should be recorded. That's what ecumenical means. And so when we talk about ecumenical councils, uh, we're talking about the uh, the entire known world at that time, the Roman Empire, and the church, the Christian church in that location, gathering together to settle disputes matters of doctrine, practice, faith, and life. And so we are uh, on the second ecumenical council, that of Constantinople I. Uh, last time we talked about Nicaea, which was what date? 325. I saw you whisper it. Yeah, 325. Well, uh, Constantinople occurs around uh, 60 years, 55, 60 years later. Well, I guess shouldn't be around 56 years later, uh, exact date, 381. You can see there a couple of statistics took place in the spring of 381. We had a, about 150 uh, men in attendance. Uh, interestingly, there was about 120 Orthodox, and when we, when we talk about Orthodox, we're talking about uh, Nicene Trinitarians, those who affirm the doctrine established and affirmed at, at Nicaea regarding the, uh, the consubstantiality, the, uh, the uh, essential uh, unity of father and son. 120 of those, and we had about uh, 30 either semi-Aryan or Aryan members of this council. So unorthodox, heterodox. Uh, it's fairly significant in this council that there was no representation whatsoever from the West. If you don't remember what that uh, refers to, when we talk about Western Christianity, we're talking about uh, really uh, Egypt westward, okay? Uh, so we're talking about Rome, we're talking about Carthage, Hippo, uh, those places. There, was, there, was no, there were no representatives from Rome, which is very significant considering uh, the prominence that the Roman church had at this time. It was all uh, Eastern representation. Now, of course, that didn't have any bearing on uh, the Western side of the church 
receiving this council, uh, they agreed with it in doctrine, although the fact that there was no Western representation uh, did cause a little bit of tension that, uh, if you study the rest of church history, would eventually develop into the Great Schism in uh, 1054, which I don't think we're going to get to in this class, perhaps in another one. Uh, so that's just a couple of the statistics of Constantinople. One, now I imagine none of you can guess where this council took place. Constantinople, right? Uh, now, what was significant about Constantinople at this time, the city? The emperor was Constantine. Okay, it was established by Emperor Constantine. It was also established... Uh, by Constantine, really as the new Rome, okay? It, it, was, it was a deliberate uh, movement of the capital of the Roman Empire to the city of Constantinople, which if you look on a map, when you see where uh, Turkey meets Europe, uh, that's where Constantinople is, uh, right there on the water. Now, uh, this council was called by Emperor Theodosius I. Emperor Theodosius the first. He was emperor, you can see in your outline there, from 379 to 395. So about 16 years, which is actually a long time for a Roman emperor. Uh, if you look at the, the lineage of Roman emperors throughout the centuries, uh, many of them reigned, some of them reigned only a few days, some of them only a few months. It was actually quite rare uh, for an emperor to reign this length of time. But he called uh, the Council of Constantinople. He convened it. And this is significant because what Theodosius I was doing as emperor is he was really continuing the work that uh, his predecessor Constantine, not his immediate predecessor, but he was really con continuing the work of the, um, I guess we could call it a Christian reformation of the Roman Empire. Now, uh, what did Constantine do that was significant for Christianity? He legalized it. Now, he did not, he did not make it the official religion. Uh, he legalized it, which uh, it, made, it made Christianity a tolerated religion, a little bit more than that, but it, it was a legal religion. Now, with Theodosius I, we have here for the first time not only Christianity legalized, but now Christianity is made the official religion uh, of the Roman Empire. Okay, so we have a significant advancement over what uh, Constantine did. And so just by way of historical lead-up to Constantinople, uh, it, it, the, this, this historical situation wasn't quite as grand. You didn't have this, uh, this emperor coming in, uh, such as Constantine in the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 312, uh, defeating the enemies of Rome, uh, establishing himself as emperor, and uh, legalizing Christianity in this, in this grand way. You know, you have the story of his conversion. It's not quite as grand here. Uh, but it is a significant movement in terms of world and especially Christian history. Uh, Theodosius was, uh, by all accounts that I read, a he was certainly a Nicene Trinitarian, okay, which is different than his predecessors. Uh, his immediate predecessors were either semi-Arian, sometimes full-blown Arian. Uh, but Theodosius was a committed Nicene Trinitarian, and uh, by all accounts that I read, he was actually a devout Christian, uh, a devoted uh, Christian. And so uh, he convenes the, uh, the Council of Constantinople, uh, as we'll talk about in just a moment, to really do what Constantine desired to do, which was to establish uh, theological unity, which was more important now than it was then, now that Christianity is the official religion uh, of the Roman Empire. He wanted to establish theological uh, unity, and really, as we'll see in just a moment, to uh, once and for all deal with the Arian issue, amongst other issues. Okay, so that's what's going on here. Uh, what we're going to be doing this morning is really just looking at uh, the theological contributions of Constantinople. Specifically, there were a number of things that were done, uh, not just theologically, but also ecclesiastically and politically. But we're just going to be looking at uh, the significant heresies that were addressed in Constantinople or by Constantinople. And so before we move into that, are there any, any questions or comments before we move into this? You can see in your outline we have um, 
Well, before we get to the heresies addressed, we're actually going to look at the Nicene Creed. But we have one, two, three, four, five heresies that this, uh, this council addresses. So we'll go through those each in turn. All right. Well, uh, the first thing that Constantinople I did, as you can see in your outline, is that there was this finalization. It was a, uh, an update, a revision, an addition to, and finalization of what we call the Nicene Creed. Uh, when we refer to the Nicene Creed today, I think I mentioned it a few classes ago, when we refer to that today, we're actually referring to the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Uh, it was uh, initially written at the Council of Nicaea, 325, but finalized here in Constantinople. Now, you can see in your outline, uh, I, I tried to mess with the formatting to make it as clear as possible. Highlights didn't really show up. But you can see in your outline there, in the regular print, you have a copy of the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. In regular print is the original 325 Nicene Creed. And in bold italics is what this council added to it. And so you can see that there's actually some significant additions, especially, especially in the end. Uh, now, the thing you need to understand about uh, the writing of creeds and of confessions, I think I mentioned this a while back, uh, in these kind of documents, every single word is important, especially when we look at, in this instance, words that have been added. Okay? Uh, as, it, as the case stands, many of these things were added to address particular theological issues that were being dealt with in the church at that time. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at some of the language that was added to the Nicene Creed and see how it addresses each of these uh, theological errors that were uh, prevalent at the church or in the church at that time. And so with that, we move into uh, the heresies addressed at Constantinople one. Now, the first of those you can see in your outline is uh, that old error of Arianism that we dealt with back when we looked at Nicaea. Uh, I mentioned at the end of our study of the Council of Nicaea that that council did not put an end to uh, the Arian problem. Uh, it did deal with it creedally, but uh, politically and ecclesiastically, the Arians were still very much a problem, uh, causing much turmoil uh, in the Roman Empire throughout the church. If anything, the Arian problem may have gotten more heated after Nicaea. Uh, some Arians, as we talked about last time, some Arians capitulated uh, to Nicaea and the Creed of Nicaea for the sake of peace, uh, but others, such as our old friend Eusebius of Nicomedia, who caused Athanasius so much trouble, uh, others such as him continued to cause theological, ecclesiastical, and political problems uh, for the Orthodox. If you can remember um, Athanasius being exiled multiple times due to men such as Eusebius. Now, I mentioned a moment ago Theodosius. Uh, at this point in time, by the calling of uh, Constantinople I, Theodosius had been emperor for two years. And so he was a very young emperor in terms of, in terms of his reign. Uh, and again, he was a committed Nicene Trinitarian, and he wanted this matter in particular finally settled because it, it was causing, um, again, theology at this point in time was so mixed with politics. Uh, he, he, he saw the political problems that heresy caused, uh, not just arguments, but also like, like physical revolts uh, and riots over these things. And we wanted this matter uh, finally settled. And with Constantinople I, we arrive at uh, really the, the death blow dealt to Arianism. You can see, uh, as you look at uh, your outline there, Arianism, along with several other heresies, were declared anathema. They were anathematized. Now, uh, what does anathema mean? Does anybody know what anathema means? Yeah, it essentially means cursed. Uh, now, here's a question. Is anathema a biblical word? 
It absolutely is. Yes. Uh, Paul himself uses this word at least twice. Yeah, in Galatians 1. Uh, if we or an angel preach a gospel that was different to the gospel to which you were converted, I'm paraphrasing here, what does Paul say? In, in most of our translations it says, let them be, let them be cursed. Uh, in, in some more literal translations, they will actually say, let them be, let him be anathema. That's the Greek word used there. Uh, let him be accursed. And so what anathema is, it's a biblical word used by these councils. It's an official declaration that uh, the beliefs that have been anathematized and those who hold to those beliefs are outside of the church and really outside, therefore, of the hope of salvation. And so for Arianism, uh, it was declared uh, anathema. You can see Canon 1, I put in your outline, Canon 1 of the Council of Constantinople that says uh, Arianism, among other heresies, are to be anathematized. They're outside the church. They're outside of the Orthodox faith. Uh, by the way, just as just skipping ahead to the future a little bit, this is why uh, the Protestant-Catholic divide uh, is so severe, even today. And the reason why is because in the, uh, the Council of Trent, which was in, uh, I think it was like 1545 to 1563, somewhere around that area, uh, actually happened during John Calvin's life. Uh, the Council of Trent, which was a response to the Reformation, actually declared justification by faith alone to be what? Anathema. They actually uh, anathematized, literally, the gospel. Uh, I, I can't quote it verbatim, but it essentially says, anyone who says that a man is justified by faith alone, uh, let him be anathema. And so that's why uh, the, the, the Reformation and what came of it uh, is in an irreconcilable position with Rome because the gospel itself has been anathematized. Okay? That's just a little historical aside there. Uh, let's see. Is there so looking at the creed uh, as added to by Constantinople one? What portions of the creed would deal with Arianism? Uh, Nicaea dealt with it, but what in this edition would make it more clear that Arianism is outside of the Orthodox faith? Yeah, yeah, any of the additions. Yeah, I mean, it's really the, the language of, uh, of Christ's only begotten, you know, the person and work of Christ being equal to God, not, you know, subordinate, which is really what the Arian argument was. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you can see in your outline is uh, begotten of the Father, and what's the addition there? Uh, before all worlds. Yeah, before all worlds, right? That's going to address another issue here in just a moment. But uh, it's things like that that deal, that just deal even more exactly with Arianism, okay, condemning it as heresy. Okay, uh, unless there are any questions or comments, let's move on to the next thing here. You can see there in your outline, uh, Marcellianism. Now, I know there's going to be a lot of words, a lot of names, a lot of isms that we're going to talk about that uh, probably haven't heard before, probably will never hear again. Uh, but as far as this one, Marcellianism, what Marcellianism is... Uh, is a form of Sabellianism. Now, does anybody remember what Sabellianism is or another word for Sabellianism? I know I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to dig back here. Sabellianism is essentially another word for modalism. That's probably a clearer word to most of us. Modalism is that doctrine that teaches uh, there is no trinity. Uh, if anything, uh, this, this, the solitary monad God manifests himself in different ways at different points in history. Uh, at creation, he, he wore the mask of God the Father. Redemption, he wore the mask of God the Son. Uh, at, at, and in the church age beyond, he wore the mask of, of the Holy Spirit and whatever. Uh, now, um, Sabellianism, therefore, believes that God is radically one. Okay? Radically one. 
uh, in no sense is God uh, three in one. Okay, so uh, with Marcellianism, we uh, it's named after this man Marcellus of Ancyra. He died around three seventy four, so actually before the Council of Constantinople, uh, seven years before, around roundabout. Uh, Marcellus of Ancyra was actually a friend of Athanasius. Uh, he was a strong, strong opponent of Arianism. He was actually one of the delegates and one of the signers of uh, the declarations and the creed of Nicaea in 325. But uh, Marcellus had a very strange view of the Trinity. In fact, uh, before studying for this class, I had never even heard of this. Uh, it's, it's very odd. Uh, and it's really a modified form of modalism. Now, what he believed is that he believed that God, before creation, was that radically one solitary monad. But then, over time, which is, you know, you're already getting into trouble when you, when you speak in terms of God and use the phrase, over time. We already have, like, a process theology there. Uh, but over time and through a process, God kind of morphs into a triune being for the purposes of uh, creation and redemption. And then after creation and redemption, he eventually kind of deforms back into uh, this, this solitary monad. It's a very, very odd view. Uh, and he comes to this position through really a faulty interpretation of 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and 28, where Paul says this, then, then the end will come when he hands over, that is Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And when all things have been subjected to him, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put all things under him so that God may be all in all. You can see kind of where, where he gets this. It's not right, but uh, that's, that's where he gets this. Uh, he's, he said, well, uh, since Christ's kingdom ends, apparently, since Christ's kingdom ends, therefore, at that point, uh, God's Trinitarian purposes are essentially done. And therefore, there's no longer any need for uh, any kind of... Tri so, for Marcellus, the Trinity is temporary. It's a temporary state of God, essentially. Now, what part of the creed, given what I just said, what part of the creed, the addition at Constantinople 1, deals with this error? Specifically, look at the end of the paragraph about Christ. Whose kingdom shall have no end. Yeah, whose kingdom shall have no end. Uh, that's actually, I didn't, I didn't know this, but that's actually uh, singularly directed at Marcellus and his followers, okay, who taught that Christ's kingdom will end. And therefore, that led them to this weird view of the Trinity. They, the Constantinople 1 added those words, whose kingdom, whose refers back to Christ. Christ's kingdom shall have no end, dealing directly with Marcellus. And again, you also have the words of begotten of the Father before all worlds, okay? It wasn't, you know, at the time of creation, God morphed into this Trinitarian being, for the purpose of creation and redemption. No, before all worlds, before all creation, uh, God the Son, begotten of the Father eternally. Okay? Um, I, there's this paragraph that I read uh, by G.L. Prestige, who was a church historian, just describing, I'll, I'll leave Marcellus at this, but this is how we describe Marcellus' doctrine, definitely clearer than what I said. He said, uh, <clears throat> Marcellus' doctrine appears to have been that the Godhead was originally a monad which developed. That's, uh, I mean, you can just put a period right there, and that's already heretical. Uh, which developed of its own nature and character by a process of active expansion into the triad. The Logos, that is, that is Christ, the Word, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. Uh, the Logos proceeded forth from God by an operative impulse in the beginning of world creation. At the end of the world, when this operation of the Logos should be completed, his separate existence once more would be merged in God as it was in the beginning. Again, very, very strange doctrine. Very odd. Uh, I'm not sure what he thought was gained by developing that, um, that odd theology. Yes, sir?
Yeah, so you're reading Ephesians 1, 20, and 20 to 23? Which uh, just kind of summarize. Just that God has seated him at his right hand. Mm. And that um, he's set him above. Um, as far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Above every name that is named. Not only this age, but also in the age of mm. Yeah. But all things under his feet. He gave his head over all things to the church. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that is a good passage. All right, uh, yes. One other comment. Yeah. On, the, um, on your footnote on the first page, uh, as both heaven and earth were removed from the section of Christ but added to the section of the Father, is that related in any way to some of that? I, I actually don't know. Um, I, I thought that was, as I was comparing the 325 and the 381 creed, I, I noticed that, but I actually I, I couldn't find any reason why that was the case. Okay, that's um, yeah. Yeah. I also don't know why the, the, the original Nicene Creed left out anything with regard to the church from the Apostles' Creed. I'm, I'm, I have no idea. It just stops at and in the Holy Ghost, period. I'm, I'm not sure why that's the case. Um, I can do some more research on that, but some things may just be lost to history. I'm not sure. Uh, okay, all right, uh, next issue here, and there's a spelling error on your outline. It should be P-H-O, not P-H-T-O. Uh, Photinianism, just going to briefly address this. You can see that in Canon 1 of the uh, Constantinople decrees, uh, Photinianism uh, anathematized. Now, uh, Photinianism was this error that was named after uh, this man, Photinus of Sirmium. Now, Sirmium is a city, or was a city. The city's still there. It's called something else in uh, modern-day Serbia, which is actually where uh, a good number of Roman emperors were born. In fact, at one time, it was actually considered kind of uh, really almost the capital of the Roman Empire because so many Roman emperors were born there. But you have Photinus of Sirmium, and what uh, his issue was is that he denied the incarnation uh, he was a Sibelian. He was a modalist who believed uh, the Logos was simply a manifestation of the Father. And so he denied any, any uh, pre-existence of Christ. Uh, he denied uh, the incarnation itself. And um, we can see there again, um, I mean, the, the creed, both Nicaea and Nicaea-Constantinople, uh, clearly and definitively dealt with that particular issue. And so I'm, I'm not really going to go any farther into Photinianism. I just wanted to address it because it's actually listed in that canon. And it's one of those things, again, probably never heard of it before, probably will never hear of it again. Uh, it's just one of those particular errors. Uh, a bigger error that uh, you've probably heard of uh, before this is that third one there, Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism. Now, this was named after the man Apollinaris of Laodicea. Uh, he died in 382. Now, again, just like Marcellus, Apollinaris was a staunch opponent of Arianism. Uh, in that regard, he was a, uh, a, a friend of Athanasius theologically. He was an opponent of Arianism. However, his issue was is that he uh, went to battle with Arius by going to the other extreme. Now, what was Arius's doctrine that was uh, anathematized as heresy here? Does anybody remember from, from Nicaea? That the Son was created. Yeah, that the Son is, uh, is a creature. Now, a very, very high creature, uh, the highest of all creatures. And, and so what, what Arius denied was the true deity of the sun. Apollinaris went the other extreme. He so emphasized the deity of the sun that he actually denied his true humanity. Now, uh, 
in order for Christ to be fully human, he must possess everything that a true human possesses. Uh, obviously, sin accepted, but we, we recognize, of course, that sin is not, uh, is not essential to humanity. Uh, God did not create man with sin. Okay, So in order for Jesus Christ to be uh, truly human, he must possess everything that uh, a, human, a true human possesses. He, he can't just be, as Apollinaris asserted, just a flesh shell in which uh, the divine logos inhabited. Okay, That was his doctrine, that, that Christ just had a flesh shell. Uh, thinking about that, here, here are just some questions that I want to ask you. And, and feel free to answer in your mind or audibly. Uh, does Christ have a human mind? Yeah. Yes. Yes, Christ has a human mind. Uh, Apollinaris denied that. Uh, does Christ have a human soul? Yes. Yes, Apollinaris denied that. Does Christ have a human will? Yes, Apollinaris denied that. Okay, uh, if you don't have a human will, soul, uh, mind, you're not human. Okay, and so he denied Jesus Christ, true humanity, and this was anathematized at Constantinople one. Uh, interestingly, it's not explicitly, as far as I can read, I would I'll be happy to be corrected on this. It's not explicitly dealt with in the creedal material. But it will actually be dealt with very explicitly later on uh, at the Council of Chalcedon. I don't know. Okay. Uh, yes, the Council of Chalcedon, where it talks about Christ having a, uh, a true body, soul, will, mind, all of that. Uh, interestingly, it's also dealt with in our catechism. Does anybody know How? So Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 22, which says, uh, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Does anybody want to answer that? Oh, Andre, you want to answer it? Sure. Yeah, man, go ahead. Part, pause that. By taking to himself what? And? Yes, Continue. Yes, yes. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. Okay? Even our standards, our Westminster standards, are addressing Apollinarianism. Okay? This is just standard uh, Orthodox Christology. Okay? Propagated through our own standards. All right. Um, Good job, Andre. Uh, Really, really happy with that. All right. One more thing that... uh, that's addressed by the Council of Chalcedon here. Now, does number four there? Does anybody want to be brave and try to pronounce that? Pneumatomachianism. Okay, one of these isms again. Probably haven't heard of it before. Won't hear of it, hear of it again. Pneumatomachianism. You can see there it comes from two Greek words. Uh, nephma. Uh, we anglicize it pneuma, uh, spirit, and also maki. Uh, which means fight or battle. The Pneumatomachians were literally uh, the spirit fighters. Uh, to put it a little bit more clearly, they were those who fought not with or for the spirit, but uh, they fought against the spirit. Okay, they were, the, they were those who waged war against the Holy Spirit. Uh, I would imagine that's not a name that they took to themselves. It's probably a name that was given to them. Pneumatomachians. Uh, Essentially, they were those who denied the deity of the Holy Spirit. They denied the deity of the Holy Spirit. Now, ironically, many of them, in terms of their Christology, were actually quite orthodox. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's so interesting how some of, these, some of these people, although they were orthodox Christologically, erred in so many other ways. Uh, these erred in terms of their pneumatology, their doctrine of the spirit. They viewed the spirit as a creature, uh, at very best, a force, 
that just emanates from God. Okay, uh, for for lack of a better analogy, you think of uh, like Star Wars or something. The Force, this impersonal power that just kind of uh, inhabits everything. Okay, that's that's kind of how they viewed the spirit. Okay, it, it's just 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 a force, not personal, uh, not deity. Uh, because of this, they were labeled semi-Aryans. Now, we talked about the semi-Aryans back at Nicaea, those that had a, uh, a homoousion view of Christ, where he was not, a, not of a different substance of the Father, but of a similar substance. Okay, Those were semi-Aryans. Uh, these were also labeled semi-Aryans uh, because they, again, had a... Um, essentially, they took Arius' doctrine of the Son and transferred it to the spirit, okay? Semi-Aryans. Now, uh, the Pneumatomachi, as they were called, were founded, you can see in your outline there, by this man, Macedonius I. And so if you're ever reading in church history and you read about the Macedonians, it's probably referring to the Pneumatomachians, okay? The Macedonians. Uh, He was appointed as bishop of Constantinople as the direct successor to guess who? Our old buddy Eusebius of Nicomedia, who was that uh, that inveterate enemy of Athanasius and uh, and of Christ, so he was uh, he was the immediate successor of Eusebius of Nicomedia, and he was uh, Macedonius was exceptionally brutal and cruel as a persecutor of Christians. In fact, I was reading in some places where he actually resorted uh, to torture. To get, uh, to get the Orthodox to come over to his side theologically. Okay, so he was a vicious man. Uh, and he eventually just altogether denounced the deity of the Spirit and really kind of formed his own sect of uh, Pneumatomachians, Macedonians. Now, uh, it should be easy to see what part of the creed uh, deals with this particular error. You can, you'll notice there, I mentioned a moment ago, where the Nicene Creed of 325 just stops at, and I believe in the Holy, or we believe in the Holy Ghost. Uh, there's a significant addition here at the Council of Constantinople where we have the Holy Ghost described as the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father. Now, there's an addition later on, whereas you'll, you'll probably notice it's missing, where we say... Uh, proceeds from the Father and the Son. Won't get into that. Uh, But at Constantinople, proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is what? Worshipped and glorified. Okay, God gives his glory uh, and will tolerate his worship being given to no other except God alone. Okay, and so when the creed says uh, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is is worshipped and glorified, they are saying... The Spirit is true living God. Okay, uh, dealt with uh, Pneumatomachianism decisively. Um, any questions about any of that or any comments? Yes, sir. Okay, well, since you brought it up, or since you are, are pressing the issue. So, uh, I, I do have it in my notes. I just didn't know if I would have time to deal with it. Um, So around the 6th century, so you're talking 200 years after Constantinople, uh, some of the Western theologians, remember, who were not included, yeah, who were were not included in Constantinople, had no representation, they started adding to this creed uh, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, okay? uh, For those of you who heard Parrish use the word filioque, uh, that's just Latin for and the Son. Now, this led to a significant controversy between the East and the West that would eventually uh, precipitate the what we call the Great Schism in 1054, uh, which is a divide that has has yet to be reconciled. Okay, and as far as I can tell, never will be. Uh, the, the doctrinal and cultural and theological divide is just too is too strong. Uh, but basically, what the West was concerned about is if you say trinitarianly that the Son uh, is begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father, that therefore you have 
um, an unintentional hierarchy in the Trinity where you have this, this equality of Son and Spirit, but really this, this, this dominance of the Father uh, over both. And so they would add uh, to the creed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so the same act of, for, for like, just forgive my language here, the same act of procession from the Father of the Spirit is also at the same time uh, uh, done by the Son, right? Uh, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so uh, what the West was concerned about is is adding that clause to um, further establish the true co-equality of the three persons of the Godhead. Does that make sense? Um I'm not sure you ask when that the filioque clause was added. I'm not sure if there's an exact date. If anybody else knows, um, I'd be, be happy to, to, to hear that. But uh, I'm not sure, honestly. Uh, do you happen to know, Mike? Are you looking it up? I say, if only there's this little, this little box that we have that would give us the, all the answers. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but but it was it was a controversy that was raging for uh, four or five hundred years uh, around this. So does that go some way to answering your question? I actually didn't answer your exact question. I kind of do what now? It, it it started it started to be to be added by uh, individual churches and theologians around 200 years later, and it just kind of increased in controversy for the next four or 500 years until it eventually led to people, you know, uh, Western bishops excommunicating Eastern bishops and, and refusing to, to take communion together, and then that just completely fractured the whole thing. Uh, but those, those fractures were already present, I mean, even in the early parts of the church. It just wasn't an official thing until uh, 1054. Any other questions? I, I just have a couple of concluding little applicatory comments here. Oh, yes, sir. Who spoke by the prophets seems to be extraneous. What's it there for? I actually think, um, I don't know if I have that in my notes or not, but I actually think that that, um, it could be there for a number of reasons, but I, I, I think it may be to show the personality of the Spirit. Okay, because when you, when, you the, the, when you talk about Trinitarian doctrine, uh, Nobody questions uh, the deity or personality of, of the Father. When you get to Christ, nobody questions his personality, but people start to question his deity. When you get to the Spirit, you have issues of people questioning both his deity and his personality. Um, yeah, only persons speak, right? Um, there are probably other reasons, but I, I'm, I'm thinking that that's one of the major reasons that that was added. Uh, if the Spirit spoke by the prophets, then the Spirit is not only deity, which was established in the previous clauses, but also uh, a, a, a divine person. Okay, uh, yes, Tristan. In anathematizing the the rejection of the deity, yeah, uh, uh, yes, yes. Um, when when a council anathematizes something, again, they're saying that that this is this is outside of orthodoxy. This is outside of um, the, those that believe those things are, are outside of the church. They're considered outside of the of the visible church, and therefore outside of the possibility of the ordinary possibility of, of salvation. Um, so, so when things are anathematized, it's a serious thing. Um, it's, it's not, again, we're dealing with um, first-tier matters, uh, not, not tertiary, not, not things about which we can disagree, still be, still be saved, but just maybe not hold formal fellowship. Um, these are first-tier issues. Okay, um, just a couple concluding applications. Um, You've seen our outline there. Uh, things we can learn from this. First of all, just really the importance of the unity of the faith. You can see that. That's why I added the uh, the theme verse at the top of your outline. 
uh, 1 Corinthians 1.10, where Paul's exhorting the brothers in Corinth to, to uh, be of one mind. And specifically, the way he phrases this is to speak the same things. To speak the same things. Now, of course, he's dealing with a church that's divided into all kinds of factions. But, I mean, really, that's just kind of a microcosm of, of what's going on in the early church at this time. The church being split apart into factions. And the reason why these councils are held is, is so that that unity of the faith uh, would be achieved and that the church would speak the same things. Uh, Calvin comments on this verse, and he says, uh, When Paul exhorts Corinth to speak the same thing, he, Im- he intimates still more fully how complete the agreement ought to be, so that no diversity may appear even in words. It is difficult indeed of attainment, but still it is necessary among Christians, from whom there is required not merely one faith, but also one confession. Okay, and that's why uh, at, at this church and this denomination, when, when we receive members, uh, we do ask that series of questions uh, that begin with doctrinal issues about the inspiration and authority of the scriptures, uh, belief in the Trinity, uh, belief in, in salvation through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Uh, that's because we want to uh, follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, of Nicaea, Constantinople, of striving to achieve that unity of faith and speaking uh, the same things. Because a church that doesn't speak the same things, uh, I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really no true church. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a conglomerate mess is what it is. Um, and that's why the early church was brought into all these controversies, and that's why they were most necessary. Which leads us to the second and final application here is uh, just the, the, the importance and necessity of theological controversy. Um, I also put it this way in my notes, is that theological controversy is never enjoyable, but it's always necessary. Okay? You can see a quote there in your outline by the, um, his, uh, an Anglican theologian of the late 19th, early 20th century, Francis J. Hall. And I'll just end with this. This is what he says. The task of theologians would be much simplified if there were no heresies among professing Christians. Yet it must be acknowledged that the conflict of the church with heresy has been a fruitful cause of theological development and enrichment. Thus God has overruled the progress of error to the benefit of his church. Many an exact and illuminating definition of revealed truth has been suggested and made possible by the cross-questioning to which the church has been subjected by those who have imperfectly grasped fundamental truths. I think he's kind of understating that there about imperfectly grasping fundamental truths. I think this was, some of this was a little beyond imperfectly grasping. But you can see, it's a very good quote showing us really the, the, the great benefit that God has wrought in his church, uh, preeminently through the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, but also providentially through the, uh, the controversies that were, that were born and brought about by these councils and dealt with by these councils. And we should uh, really give thanks to God uh, for that, that, uh, that reality. And that's why we're studying these things. Um, any comments, questions? Yes, sir. Just a general comment. I mean, obviously the creeds are derivative of Scripture, but they also inform us in how we read and hear Scripture as well, mm-hmm. what we're allowed to say about them. So, I mean, it's just, it's, you're, I'm kind of just summarizing, or at least attempting to summarize, you know, the creeds actually put boundaries on what we, what we say the Scripture says. Yeah. And uh, that, that brings to mind a little comment in the preface to the reader, not the preface to Francis I, but in Calvin's Institutes, the preface to the reader, uh, where he says the reason why he's writing the Institutes, the reason why Calvin wrote the Institutes, he said, I want people to read Scripture well. Um, and that's, I mean, that's precisely what's going on here. It's, it's derived from Scripture. Uh, it doesn't have any of, these creeds don't have any authority in and of themselves. They only have authority insofar as they, uh, agree with Scripture, uh, but they give us good language about, and they give us good fence, a, a good fence line as we read Scripture, and it really it does a good job of summarizing the analogy of faith. Where when we get to, to difficult parts of Scripture, we we can we can recall, okay, this is this is what this is what Scripture teaches. This is the language that I have in my mind. This is what I've been given. Uh, through the church and through those who came before me, and it, and it kind of helps us read scripture well and guides us. So, good comment. Yes, sir. I think also, 
also as we study councils uh, in church history, you know, for a church that confesses its belief that the Holy Spirit is no longer giving extraordinary revelatory gifts to the church, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is not in extraordinary ways working in his church. And these councils, uh, up through even, you know, you talk about the Westminster Assembly and other things, the Holy Spirit worked powerfully. Now, mm -hmm. Obviously, the men and the, the, the creeds are not infallible, so it's mm -hmm. error and all that. But it's a remarkable thing to look back and, you know, as you see, the Spirit is the one guiding his church into all truth. And we'll do that until the day Christ comes. And uh, that's it's just a wonderful encouragement. Yeah, it really is. And uh, I'm glad you said what you just said, because I think, I wonder if some people use Jesus' words about the Spirit leading, uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples, leading them into all truth. I do wonder if some people illegitimately confine that just to the 12. Um, I kind of view it as, as really uh, foreshadowing, of course, especially them, but, but, but through them, the, the guiding of the church. Uh, they have no promise of preservation of the church in the way of truth. I mean, we might lose it if it's only applicable yeah. to the twelve. Yeah. Yeah. That's why the church has never, never vanished. It may be very, very small and not noticeable, uh, as our confession says, uh, but it's there and being preserved. All right. Well, um, let me close in prayer and we can move into worship. Our Father in heaven, we do give you praise that you, by your spirit, uh, do lead us uh, into all truth, that you guide us, you direct us. We thank you that you have uh, directed uh, the, the church in the past as they've dealt with these issues, these controversies, these theological um, errors. And uh, through your providential work and really through the powerful presence and working of your spirit, you have, uh, you have preserved uh, the truth in your church Lord, help us to, uh, to give you thanks for these things. Uh, help us to study these things, uh, again, not because they are infallible, uh, not because they have any authority in themselves, but, Lord, help us to, uh, to be informed Christians, uh, knowing uh, from where we came uh, historically and doctrinally, and help us to, um, to learn from that past, uh, even as we, as we read the Scriptures and as we seek to live uh, according to them. We ask that you would bless us now as we uh, seek to worship you uh, in the public assembly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.